0: This is a crowd podcast. Joseph Stalin, Melanchthon, Nasser, Emperor Kafiaf.
1: Ooh, good tunes. Like it, Billy. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's history through a Billy Joel number one hit. All the people, places and moments that shaped our world, the ones racing for space, turning up the Cold War heat, building things up and knocking them down. I'm Tom Fordyce.
0: I'm Katie Puckrick.
1: Katie, you ready to start some fires?
0: Oh, am I? Today, we are meeting the man behind the music, that many of us know and love. He is a Russian composer named Sergei Prokofiev, and some of his tunes include my very first record at the age of three, which was Peter and the Wolf. Uh, Peter and the Wolf, and I played the bejesus out of that thing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, come on. That was the way that little kids around the world got familiar with the orchestra. I was one of those little kids that got shuttled off to ballet classes and then my family would go out and see ballets. And so that was also how I ran into Prokofiev because he wrote Romeo and Juliet, which had that hit song called The Dance of the Night.
1: That is a song in my ignorance that I know as the Apprentice theme tune. Okay. So I think of Alan Sugar when I hear those <laughs> That's notes.
0: That's very, very stimulating, good old Alan Sugar. Because originally it was from the scene in Romeo and Juliet where the Montagues and the Capulets.
1: They were a very formal dance. It's
0: a formal dance and it's very like, there. it's a real chest puffing. There's a lot of
1: chest puffing.
0: Chest puffing. Uh, it's struttage. A, it's strutting, it's struttage. They're facing off at the big ball. Yeah, good shit, man, good shit.
1: Well, Katie, I'm glad that you have that past history because in my family, it was slightly different. You know, sometimes as a child, you define yourself in opposition to your siblings. Yes. So my big sister, bang into classical music, very good at the violin, became a professional violinist. Oh, that meant that my childhood was soundtracked by the violin played at the start very badly.
0: Yeah, lots of squeakiness. A lot
1: of squeaking. The violin is not a nice instrument when it's being learnt. But increasingly, just the violin being played better and better. But in my boy's head, just being played forever. So there was a split. Sister, classical music. Me, rock and roll. So this is going to be an education for me, Katie.
0: So Tom, we can speculate about Prokofiev until the cows come home. But what will help our listeners is today's expert. He is a Russian concert pianist and the music curator at Pushkin House, Alexander Karpayev, also known as Sasha. Hello. No,
2: Hello,
0: My question for you is we're dealing with somebody who changed music in the 20th century from the Russian perspective. Now, he always was. Quite a mover and shaker, even as a child. He was a little bit of a, a child prodigy, wasn't he?
2: He was a naughty child indeed, particularly studying you know, here. His teachers were quite traditional, very backward-looking guys. And then comes Prokofiev, who his early compositions were compared to football, as if, as if he was just uh, running a ball around the keyboard. It sounded, they sounded so avant-garde, so modern. So although he was... He was looking backwards as if um, he was rooted in a tradition. Yes. He was a naughty child trying to experiment always and and be energetic and looking for new ways to express himself and new music.
0: And he was uh, actually writing at the age of five years old, wasn't he?
2: That's correct. So before he published his first sonata, he wrote a few operas. And quite a lot of songs and quite a lot of compositions. Yes. And th-
0: this is all when, like, before the age of 10. Like, he, he wrote an opera when he was nine years old. And then it, by the time he's 12, he starts experimenting with dissonant harmonies and unusual time signatures. I mean, how come he was so interested in that? I mean, like, kids are normally kind of. Uh, kids are cute, Tom, but, you know, they're not n- normally composing operas and ex- exploring, you know, pushing the boundaries of music.
2: Uh, I mean, Mozart started to compose when he was seven. Right. But with <laughs> but we are talking about um, we're talking about exceptions, right? There are, there are really gifted musicians, really gifted human beings, and undoubtedly, Brookhoff was one of them. So, in, being nine years old, he composed this opera called Giant, and he's made his, mate, his um, playmates play the roles, and he was always always the center of the village. His parents were well off, and um, they have a on its estate and he was looked looked up to right because he was the son of the owner but he was on equal terms with 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 everyone really so that's a really good beginning that helped him later in life to be Really open-minded, really friendly with everyone, really. He sounds quite different, Katie, not only because of what he's doing
1: musically. Apparently, when he was a student, he was considered eccentric and arrogant by his fellow students. And he apparently annoyed his classmates by
2: keeping statistics of their errors.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's not going to endear him to his classmates. I think he's
2: just very organized. um.
0: Competitive.
2: Oh, definitely. Later in life, and even as a kid, he wanted uh, he wanted to be number one. He wanted to be admired. He wanted to be adored, and uh, he he gave a lot in return, obviously. But yeah, when he was a student was reading his diaries, he was actually keeping notes not only of people's mistakes, but of his female classmates as well. <laughs> that's something that's actually... What, like ra- like rating them? Not giving points, but discussing whether how beautiful they are and, and, you know, whether he's met all of them and whether how many of them were in his classroom. I was like, really, really, okay, hold on for like 16-year-old guy. It's quite... Yeah. Did his, did his musical ability
1: set him apart, though, did it? Because he was clearly so talented compared to his contemporaries. Did that force him almost out of their orbit a little bit?
2: Not true. I think he was still respected by his classmates, right? By his, by his colleagues, always. And partially because he respected them. One of his best friends was composer Mieskowski. And their friendship, which started from school years, concert years, it really ran throughout their whole lives, Uh, And that's quite exceptional where two musicians actually were able to talk to each other about their music, criticize it openly, criticize it harshly.
0: Yeah. So he had a youthful reputation as a musical rebel. I read that at the premiere of one of his first piano concertos. The audience was a little ruffled. Tom, and uh, apparently overheard in the concert hall was, to hell with this futuristic music. The cats on the roof make better music. So Sasha, apparently the modernist, thought the sounds were pretty fresh.
2: Prokofiev just wanted to be on top of the game, really. I don't think he was doing those steps consciously. It was just, it was his nature to be ex- experimental, adventurous. So adventure is the word I would use describing him quite a lot through, in, in his life, in his art.
1: And how does it work? If you are the young Prokofiev and you decide that you want to be a composer, this is not the usual career path for anyone, let alone in Russia at that time. You know, he's not the same as saying, I want to be a teacher, I want to be a woodworker, I want to be a soldier. So, how does it work for him? Does he need a sponsor? Does he need to link up with the best teacher in the
2: country? That's a good question. So I read that when he was ready to publish his first works, he accepted a really small honorarium. And basically he was, he was ready to give them away for free just to get published. And I think it comes down to having wealthy parents really. That really helped. He had opportunities from the very start. But... That doesn't diminish the scale of his talent.
1: And how many hours would he be playing the piano every day?
2: That his diaries don't really shed light on.
0: He's too busy writing about the girls, the pretty girls. (laughs)
2: That's right. That's what the diary's about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he did win a grand piano in a contest at his conservatory. So, I mean, not the most portable prize. (laughs) But useful. Very useful. How did he, Sasha, how did... Prokofiev make it out of Russia because he did do a... He ended up traveling to Paris and writing some ballets for Sergei Diaghilev in the Ballet Russe.
2: That's right. But before he got to Europe, you know, he traveled to to states. And unusually, when he was leaving Russia in uh, 1918, you know, country was uh, torn in a civil war. It was a horrible time.
0: Oh yeah, because World War One was just wrapping up, but then it was the Russian Revolution.
2: Correct. Yes. Revolution followed by a civil war. It, it was a horrible time to be in a country. Many composers left. Strinsky left many years ago, Rachmaninoff um year before. Uh, but the most of the immigrants they left Russia through through Odessa through Black Sea or going through Baltic countries. Prokofiev went east he went to Vladivostok. He crossed the whole country in uh, Trans-Siberian Express. Went to the first, furthest point in Russia. Went to Japan, played in Japan, and from there onwards he he, he went to New York. So it's uh, even the way he left Russia was incredible. What's what's was remarkable for me on this train journey, which you know takes a few weeks, and there were delays. Uh, because of the civil war, at some point, the train was six days late at one of the stations. He got really upset, right? Because he loved being punctual everywhere. But what can we do? It's a civil war. He ended up writing short stories on the train. Ah. And that part of his art is not really famous. I read some of them, and they're actually quite good. Are they? Full of imagination, fantasy, um, again, this sense of adventure, human uh, humor, excuse me sunshine, just like in his music. Ah,
1: oh, Casey, I was sort of surprised when I heard that he'd left Russia. I was wondering how he managed it at that time. And there's a quote from uh, a high-ranking official who says to Prokofiev, you are revolutionary in music, we are revolutionaries in life. We ought to work together, but if you want to go to America, I shall not stand in your way.
0: Well, they say that, and then they figure out a way to stand in his way later on. And so he ends up in Paris with the Ballet Russe and um, he's in good company because Stravinsky is writing for them and uh, George Balanchine is choreographing for the Ballet Russe. And uh, he, I think his first love really is opera, isn't it, but he ends up starting to compose for the ballet.
2: Well, I think opera was his first love, so to say. He really wanted to make a name as an operatic composer. And I do think they are underappreciated, I think it's just the love to Three Oranges that make it made it into international repertory, but The Gumbler is quite good. He really made a huge bet on being an operatic guy and it didn't really come across, so he, he ended up writing ballets as well and he was slightly more successful in them and that's because I think he he felt free expressing himself to just instruments to just instrumental music.
0: How would you characterize his approach as a composer? Like his his actual sound. W- what are the hallmarks of a Prokofiev work?
2: Energy, of course. You know you, you can feel the life pulsating in his uh, works. Um, sunshine, humor, being positive, just like he was as a man, really. Uh, at the beginning of his career of course there was a strong inclination towards towards avant garde right he wanted to be ahead of the game really being in America, he had to adapt his style a little he was trying to find a more simple language a more simple musical language i think towards the end of his life he managed to kind of combine the two you know without losing individuality he was you know his music is recognizable
0: i find him very cinematic uh, and very uh, expressive and expansive. And the reason why I keep harping on about his ballet work is because I'm a dancer. And the thing about it, just to even dance to, it's so, it almost dances for you. And it's got this gossamer shimmer and there's so much drama to it. So it, it's, um, it almost tells you the story, like you were saying the thing about he wasn't hemmed in as he would have been with opera by the words, but actually you can see the pictures with his music. Would you agree that there's something course, to that?
2: Of course, of course. For me, it's this sense of the imagination, extraordinary imagination in, his, in the short stories and instrumental music, and particularly in ballets, managed to deliver this, uh, you know, what's important in dance, to have a beat, right? To sense, to have a pulse. We should dance, and that was so naturally inbuilt in him in his temperament that uh, I think he yeah he was particularly successful as a ballet composer for that reason. Mm.
0: Although I did read that he almost got into a punch up with Stravinsky after uh, old Igor poo pooed uh, Prokofiev's opera aspirations. Like Stravinsky was like you know just stick with this this is good for you, and uh, Sergei didn't want to hear it.
2: Well. Don't get me started about talking the you know, relations between the musicians. <laughs> uh, Prokofiev, he, he aspired to Stravinsky, he, he, he was number one in Western Europe, I'm afraid, when Prokofiev came. And in the States, that was Rachmaninoff who ended up being number one concert pianist. So um, Prokofiev, just, he wasn't really, really kind of iconic composer during his lifetime. maybe the soviet union towards the end of his life but not before that
0: yeah it must have been frustrating
1: katie i don't know about you but i need a little breather should we have some ads this is the story of whitney houston of george michael of otis Redding, of amy winehouse of michael hutchins bob marley this is the story of prince
0: it's a new podcast series
1: about how they died and while we're still talking about them so long after
0: it's like nothing you've ever heard before.
1: That feeling.
0: That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.
1: Here's thing I wonder, Katie, right? There's, there's certain things in art that I can not do, but I can understand how they're done. So you can understand how a rock song is written. You understand the basic chords and a guitar, and then you can put your rhythm track, on, and then you build the bass, and it all makes sense. With something like Prokofiev does, I don't even know where to begin. So, Sasha, how does he write these great, beautiful pieces, these multi-layered, incredibly complex things where there's harmonies going on, there's seven or eight different instruments,
2: there's movements and there's passion. How does he even start to write them? I'm 99% sure he was actually writing at the piano, playing playing the music first. He would write it down as a piano score and then right nose to himself, that line would be played by oboe, that line would be cellos, here's where percussion would enter, um, those kind of remarks, and then he would turn it into orchestral score, this is called orchestration.
1: So what would he have been like if Katie and I were at one of his concerts, and we're sitting with Katie, we've got great seats somehow, we've pulled a few strings,
0: Okay, thank we're not goodness. quite in the
1: front row because we are not nobility, but we we can
2: see everything that's going on, what would his performance be like? I think as a performer, He would also have this sense of energy. When you're in a room, you always can feel what's going on. And he he would attract everyone's attention. Everyone's eyes would be on him. Uh, He was a tall guy as well, a center point of the performance. And uh, he would hold your attention for the whole duration of the piece. There's no doubt about it. And then after it's all done, you you would feel like, wow, that was (laughs) Prokofiev.
0: So if we have a composer who's very interested in polytonality and dissonance and and being on the the cutting edge, and he's now in an environment where uh, he has to watch his back. How does this affect him and his work?
2: I would I actually disagree slightly. I think. <laughs> When he came back in 1936, he obviously he was he was looking for a place where he could be number one, right? And um, I think it was between him and Um uh, And at the time, Shostakovich being 14, yes, yeah, his junior, he had um, obviously privileges that go together with it. He was awarded Stalin Prize nearly five times, I think. And Stalin Prize equals to amount of cost of uh, like one. Bedroom flat each time, right? Okay. So right. he was well off, I think, in Soviet Union. He wasn't complaining. He was willing to to play the game with the government. And obviously, he wrote pieces to glorify Stalin, to celebrate anniversaries of October revolutions, mm-hmm. all those kind of works that we totally forgot about today, but every composer had had to write back then.
0: And so he wrote. Peter and the Wolf, and that was for that was kind of like the uh, the Soviet version of celebrating uh, Boy Scouts, which were the young pioneers, right? So Peter is a young pioneer.
2: Correct, the young pioneer. Peter goes to catch a wolf. That was written for his friend Natalia Sats, uh, who ran a children's theater. Uh, so the whole idea was spontaneous, I think. But you know, he ended up writing a piece which, which is probably his most famous composition right and that's that's clearly done with with love towards children with you know in edu- with educational purposes. you know he had two t- t- two sons growing up, so Partially, perhaps that was written for them.
0: And the idea was to uh, introduce the world of orchestral music to children, yeah, n- instrument by instrument.
2: Each animal in the story would have a specific instrument. Cat would be represented by clarinet, yes. and duck would be oboe.
0: Oboe, yeah. So this
2: is bringing back memories now,
0: Katie.
1: <laughs> As a kid, that used to terrify me because my mum would play it, probably to try and get me into classical music. Yes. vain hope, as it turned out. So that story, she would tell me about, like, this is the duck, and then this is the wolf. Despite the fact that they hadn't been wolves in the Hertfordshire-Essex borders for probably a thousand years, my takeaway from Peter and Wolf was that I was about to be eaten by a wolf. And as a result, I had a series of nightmares. My bedroom in the house was the first one at the top of the stairs. So in my five-year-old head, the wolf would somehow get in the front door and come up the stairs. Who's the first one he's eating? I know. <laughs> Me.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what we're seeing there is a little bit of an echo of Stalinist social control there. Just, you know, if you don't if you don't tow the party line... The he, wolf's going to get you. The wolf is going to get you. And somebody who was perceived as not towing the party line was uh, Natalia, the head of the children's theatre, who commissioned Peter and the Wolf, because... Uh, she was snapped
2: up. That was a very normal procedure, horribly, I'm afraid. The year when Prokofiev came back, 1936, uh, you know, 1937, the following one was was is famous for being the, the most the horrible one.
0: It's called the Great Purge.
2: Indeed. And Prokofiev, when he came back, he brought his wife and two sons with him and his wife, Lina, being a Spanish origin. Very brave move from her from her, right? Yeah. She loved him to do that. Five years later though, Prokofiev ended up being with someone else. They somehow existed like that for seven years, him being formally married to Lena and then having a a second unofficial wife. When in nineteen forty eight he wanted to marry his second wife. He was told That his marriage is actually not recognized by the Soviet Union in the first place.
1: So, what was up? Was it because they married outside of Russia or because she wasn't Russian?
2: I think that was a decision probably made by Stalin himself. Allow Prokofiev to marry his second Russian wife. He could decide individual's destiny like that. Weeks after he got married, Lena got arrested and sentenced to 20 years of Gulag. Hard labour. Hard labour, yes, indeed.
1: And was that, what, just a jumped-up charge that Stalin had come up with, or...?
0: I hear that she had actually tried to apply to send some money to her mother in Spain. And the decision was, well, you're obviously a spy... It's international
2: espionage. She was, she was attending parties at um, foreign embassies. Had lots of friends in French embassies, Spanish embassies and that's enough to be on the blacklist. Yes. Whoa.
0: Yeah.
1: So what impact when Peter and the Wolf, I want not say comes out because I'm, I'm I'm, talking about this Katie like it's a number one in the hip parade. <laughs> Like, Who's listening to Peter and the Wolf in Russia?
2: Well, well Russia being, Soviet Union being a large country, huge country, uh, radio was a very important part of propaganda and obviously um, premieres were recorded and uh, Peter Wolf would be recorded and played on radio. It instantly became a hit.
1: So Prokofiev would be known across Russia by ordinary Russians.
0: Yeah, if, if you have a radio, you know all about Prokofiev, I would have thought. He did end up writing a, a series of what is known now as the War Sonatas.
2: Correct. Um, so the three so-called War Sonatas, they, they were premiered. During the World War II, during the war, the censorship was relaxed a little bit because obviously the focus was on the war, and composers could be freer again. And that's why those three particular sonatas there consider some of the one of the highlights of his output. Because
0: he is, he can let his freak flag fly. And in fact, I've seen you performing Sonata Number Seven on YouTube. And uh, it is so demanding, and your playing is so virtuosic. It's incredible.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, As I said before, the sonatas are indeed uh, quite demanding.
1: Is it exhausting playing his pieces? Do you have to put a lot physically into them?
2: With Prokofiev, yes, it's a bit more physical than other composers. There are famous leaps in his third concerto, when he actually, your left hand has to fly at a speed, which you obviously you can't see the keyboard, you can't. You can see the hand. But uh, mostly it's the intellectual concentration, isn't it? (laughs) To to keep the text there, to keep um, the story going.
0: So, Sasha. Prokofiev has this great success in Russia, and of course there's a few blips along the way where he's sort of in and out of favor. But in 1948, the Politburo denounced Prokofiev for the crime of formalism, and many of his works are banned from performance, and He he's broke. What was his life like at this time?
2: That decree meant that not in any concert hall, they would never play this, those composers again. Not just those compositions that were banned, they wouldn't dare to program them at all. Mm. That literally meant uh, artistic death to many of them and for Prokofiev, you know, he became very insecure and what he wrote after this isn't very significant at all, I'm afraid. Famously, when the decree was read in, in Moscow, there was a deathly silence in the hall. It was just Prokofiev chatting to the guy next to him, the conductor of, of the war and peace. <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> so that just demonstrated like he He didn't really... He wasn't living on the dark side. Even the Soviet Union, he he kept being optimistic and, you know, Mm -hmm. riding his car and enjoying life to the full. And that's something to admire in him, I think.
1: Katie, that that lifts my spirits, hearing about those last days. But then he has probably the greatest misfortune you could have in Russia at that time because he dies on the very same day as Stalin. And if there's one thing that's going to overshadow your death, it's dying on the same day That'll do it. So apparently, Katie, so you'd expect Stalin to dominate the newspapers the day after his death. Of course, it's going to happen. But the main Soviet musical periodical, you know, something which is just about music, it only mentions Prokofiev on page 116. So the first 115 pages of a musical periodical about the death of Stalin.
0: Well, there's a lot to say about it.
2: I've read about this. I've, I've um, heard that most newspapers actually announced Prokofiev's deaths to the end of the month. His friends were struggling to buy flowers. The only way to buy them would be to say they are for Stalin. Oh. <laughs> no. And most of his colleagues were in the famous ones, Richter and Mr. Poich were engaged in playing at Stalin's funeral. And then Awkward. only some of them managed to get to Prokofiev's and play there as well. Some didn't make it. And I've heard uh, it might be true that because he lived so close to Kremlin, Prokofiev's coffin had to be carried out of the house through the roof. Wow! And w- was he was he treated as a hero
1: in the Soviet Union after his death? Once, once the death of Stalin had been processed, dealt with, once he'd been eulogized, praised, embalmed, all the rest of it. How was Prokofiev treated?
2: I think he's, he was known and popular during a lifetime. Also, you know, mm. so. I think what became um, less important than that he lived outside Russia for eighteen years. That bit could be forgotten about finally, and he could be uh, identified as the, as the Russian composer. And,
0: and what would you say the legacy of Prokofiev is?
2: I think it's about being one of those rare artists who lived through World War One, World War Two, Russian Revolution, emigration, Great Purge and he kept writing music throughout all those events, and he kept being optimistic and full of life, and that's what to admire in him, I think. A survivor. Sasha,
1: thank you so much for filling our heads with so much more knowledge about Prokofiev, and if people want to see you playing Prokofiev, they can find you where? There is a CD
2: I've made with some of the visions fugitive, And i would have to record more in the future.
0: I would track uh, Sasha down on YouTube and check out the fancy finger work. And uh, you'd look him up via his full formal name, Alexander Karpeyev, K-A-R-P-E-Y-E-V.
1: And if people have never heard any Prokofiev and they need to hear one piece, Sasha, what is his number one smash hit banger? That would be the Dance of
2: the Night from Romeo and Juliet, wouldn't it? Just give us a little burst of that, please, Katie.
0: You have to sing along, Sasha. Come on, we're you're the one. Who's... it Katie.
2: Look at the expression on <laughs> Sasha's face. He's
0: looking he's a- disgusted. Absolutely mortified.
2: I'm looking for a keyboard to actually accompany you. That's that's how my instincts work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's clicking. He's clicking his fingers <laughs>
2: on the table. That's he's right. He's doing <laughs>
0: some. He's doing some um, air pianoing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Katie, I'll be honest. The more I hear about the privations, the brutal brutal reality of Stalin's Russia. I get the feeling that you and I, as we fancy ourselves as creative types, would not be in for a good time.
0: Uh, He doesn't have a wide-ranging love uh, of of all things forward-thinking when it comes to artsiness. Um, I think Stalin's big thing was repression. Repression, repression, repression. And poor Prokofiev, I mean, he just... Never could catch a break when it came to trying to get one of his operas off the ground. There'd always be some sort of like a a revolution or, you know, he'd have to leave town or, you know, something would be going down.
1: So Katie, from one piano playing legend to another piano playing legend, very close to our hearts, Billy Joel, has he done the right thing in including Prokofiev in his own masterwork?
0: I think in this case, he is... Revealing something about himself, I think, that much like myself and much like you, Tom, he probably listened to Peter and the Wolf as a toddler. And I think that may well have been his introduction to music. I mean, we have to ask him when we meet him. We will track him down. One day, Billy, we're coming for you. You can't escape. You can't run. You can't hide.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, Katie, because the year that Prokofiev dies, 1953... Mm. Sits right in the sweet spot for Billy. Billy loves the 50s more than any other decade, doesn't he?
0: According to the song, he can't, he can't <laughs> escape the 50s. Like By the time he gets to the 80s, there's like two and a half topics.
1: <laughs> we shall get to the 80s, Katie, but what about
0: next week? <laughs> next week, we are dealing with Rockefeller. Uh, there's quite a selection of Rockefellers, isn't there? And in this case, we're dealing with Winthrop. What's a name. It is quite a name.
1: Katie, I'm looking forward to that already. In the meantime, if you want another podcast to listen to, there's a great new series called Human Resources, which explores the true story of Britain's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade.
0: It's hosted by Moya lothian MacLean. She's a journalist and descendant of black African slaves and white slave owners. She'll be tracing the echoes of the slave trade across the UK.
1: So this series takes us right across the nation from rural Welsh clothing districts all the way to to one of the best known chocolate factories in Birmingham.
0: You can find human resources wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And if you want a little bit more fire, Katie, people can follow us on social media at spread that fire, and they can email us at fire at crowdnetwork.co dot uk.
0: I'm gonna be at my keyboard waiting for that email. Proud Network, a place where you belong.
1: Hello, my name is Peter Zablaki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts Podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor a Civil War Army doctor, and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.
0: History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time?